I'm just here to very briefly introduce Ellie Harrison, who's going to do our final session. Uh, Ellie was born in London in 1979 and now lives and works in Glasgow, where she sees herself as a political refugee escaped from the Tory strangleholds of southern England. Thanks, Russell. Um, Okay, so I've been given this polemic slot, which seems... Thanks, Cecilia. It's a bit of a carte blanche to have a rant, so I apologise, and it's late in the day, so just relax into it. It's only half an hour. Um, So I've also been given the task of trying to elaborate on some of the recurring themes of today's session, which has been the most amazing experience, I hope you'll all agree, And um, it's given me lots and lots to think about as I'm heading back on the train, back up to Glasgow tomorrow. But I'm going to link this all all together by giving you a bit of a personal account of what's been driving and motivating me to do the things that I've done over the last five years. And I do think today has been a very important conference because I think as artists it is essential that we become more self-reflexive and honest in analysing and questioning just why, why, why we work. Is it for the love of it? Boredom, the desire for success, whatever success might mean, for the money, for the peer recognition, to change the world, a compulsion to act, curiosity to try to understand or an attempt to control. Who knows, these are just a few of the many, many reasons that we're motivated. Over the last five years, I've spent quite a lot of time analysing my own motivations and values and identifying how they've been shaped by the world around me. And I've attempted to, to take control of these so that there's less contradiction between what I believe in and how I actually act. So I hope that this will have some resonance with any artists out there who might feel a slight unease about their chosen career path or who are concerned with the state of the world and wondering just what on earth they should try to do to try to change it. And of course, these last five years have been the ideal opportunity for doing this sort of thinking. Um, As we all know, it's been a time of prolonged crisis, economic, social, and also environmental. So it's worth reminding ourselves of the definition of this word that we hear banded around so much at the moment, because crisis refers to a turning point or a moment of decisive change. So it's been almost five years since the credit crunch began, believe it or not, when that little-known, well, then little-known bank called Lehman Brothers that Doug mentioned earlier uh, filed for the biggest bankruptcy in in the history of the world with $600 billion disappearing overnight. And then we all know what happened. This turmoil spread to different parts of the world. And in 2009, Gordon Brown gave 850 billion pounds of UK taxpayers' money to bail out our corrupt banking industry. So just to put these numbers into perspective, I thought it would be interesting to compare that with the total UK 
uh, art spending, this is in England, Scotland and Wales, in 2011 and 2012. That's the little tiny pink dot in the middle. I don't know if you can see it there. Yeah, there's the 850 billion. Ooh. Um, so, and we all know that since Cameron's coalition came in in 2010, the changes that we've been witnessing certainly aren't the ones we might have hoped for. With huge cuts to public spending, um, which is obviously going to have a massive impact on all artists' lives. And I'm sure that these were factors which were um, the impetus for calling today's conference. Um, the 15th of September 2008, purely coincidentally, was the day that I moved to Glasgow. And it was the day that I started to do my MFA, in fi- my Master of Fine Art at Glasgow School of Art. So luckily, I had two whole years in front of me for really thinking and reflecting on what was going on in the world around me. And it wasn't so much the financial turmoil that I was concerned with, but more the impact that our capitalist system and its demand for continual expansion on a finite planet was having on the environment. So this graph here, and I hope you can see it, I mean, you'll probably grab the gist of it, that it's kind of just sloping upwards. This was published in 2010 in the wake of the UN um, Climate Conference in Copenhagen in December 2009. And it shows the estimated global temperature increase over the course of the next century, which is likely to result from our ever-increasing CO2 emissions, which are ever-increasing if everybody saw the, anybody saw the news last week about reaching this 400 um, parts per million, which is completely unprecedented territory. So this was the really sobering stuff that I was looking at. And it threw up some fundamental questions that people like Lawrence Wiener, who, were quoted, who was quoted on the PowerPoint at the beginning, were dealing with in the 1960s. Um, and also a quote from Douglas Hubler there from 1969. In a world where the overproduction of objects and the overuse of resources is essentially our biggest problem, how can we carry on regardless, passively contributing to the problem rather than actively helping to solve it. So the logical conclusion to this problem is obviously just to stop. And the rise of the conceptual art movement in the 1960s was in many ways an attempt to resist the rampant consumerism and commodification. And Gustav Metzger in the 1970s and Stuart Holm took this to an even more extreme level um, by calling their own art strikes. But what I found is that sometimes if you take that path of instrumental reason and follow a problem right through to its logical end, then sometimes the conclusion is actually absurd. Because isn't, for an artist, giving up art akin to actually killing yourself? This is something that I've been thinking about comparable to that greatest existential dilemma that people like Albert Camus and in the 60s also dealt with. We have to carry on. We are, though, carbon-making machines. We breathe carbon out all day long. So there is a fundamental contradiction that we've got to overcome if we want to continue breathing. 
But once we've become resigned to this contradiction, it seems that you better damn well make sure that you're not wasting your time so that some of this CO2 is in some way mitigated. But as a career-minded MFA student that I was back in 2010, I looked at this graph and it just didn't stack up because there was a complete disjunction with this vision of success or the vision of the future that I'd been working towards. You know, this is a timeline of the, this uh, 1993 to 2001, 2100, that year in the future. You know, and I, 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 um, I was planning to have won the Turner Prize sort of somewhere around here. I wasn't planning of, to, you know, be suffering as a result of global crop failures or feed shortages or massive influx of climate refugees or extreme weather conditions, flooding snow. Who knows what's going to happen, but it's probably more likely than me winning the Turner Prize. <laughs> but the big question I had, apart from this one was how I could begin to reconcile this careerist mentality, which had been bred into me at art school during Tony Blair's creative decade, but also as a child growing up under Thatcher's neoliberal regime, with this slightly more pessimistic view of the future. The challenge for me was to analyse how I could use the skills that I had learnt to more altruistic ends rather than simple personal reward or the bolstering of my own ego. So this was the title of the dissertation I wrote on my MFA. And my conclusions were that we do have certain qualities which would be crazy to throw away. For example, our flair self-assurance and self uh, self and sense of audacity. This is from a book written by Hans Abing called Why Are Artists Poor? where he identifies that the precociousness of, uh, of the average art student is actually a very, very useful skill. The fact that most art students, and unfortunately this is becoming increasingly worse, come from above average social backgrounds this gives us a, self, a sense of self-confidence, or arrogance maybe, but also a sense of determination that what we're doing is so important that people really, really, really should listen. Imagine how useful that could be if we really were saying something that mattered. <laughs> then, there's these working practices of the post-Fordist era, which we've all become accustomed to, the flexibility, nomadism, spontaneity, qualities which some argue have, artists have always had, but which have become more mainstream over the course of the last 30 years. But this ability to act on the spur of the moment, or to be flexible and adapting to change, or taking on different roles as necessary, is going to be vital in an uncertain and unprecedented future that we are likely to face as a result of these increasing CO2 emissions. But finally, there's our absolutely obsessive work ethic 
The fact that most artists, as we've identified today, there is very little connection between labour and wage. We happily work away for the love of it or for any of those other <laughs> possible reasons without any prospect of monetary reward. And it's this quality which Hans Abin um, identifies as being what sustains the whole art world, what keeps things going, this free labour. So artists, we know that we all have skills that we should be proud of. So the thing that we've got to do is make sure that these skills are not instrumentalised or hijacked by other people. And we should think very, very carefully about how we can best use them to fight for something that we really do believe in. So far from quitting, I developed a new way of working which was not dissimilar to the ways in which large campaigning organisations like Greenpeace tend to operate through these multi-pronged channels where they operate across official, semi-official and illicit activity to negotiate specific ends. My plan was to use a variety of tactics, some beyond the art world, some within, to, to, to attempt to illuminate some of the fatal contradictions of the capitalist system which are leading us into climate disaster and also to affect change. So my new role, I, I came to refer, came to refer to of my new, as, I came to refer to my role not just as artist, but rather as artist, activist, and administrator. And by positioning myself between these three different personalities, if you like, I became more aware of the demands and the desires of each, how I was being pushed and pulled in different directions. So my first step, anyway, was to launch an environmental policy on my website, explaining all of the things that I attempted to do to reduce my carbon footprint. So these were, these are, because it's still online, real guidelines um, by uh, real guidelines um, describing how I attempt to live my life. But as as well as that, they're kind of an exploration of that familiar corporate greenwash, or the way in which a strong ethical stance can actually be used as marketing power. But if you do go public about your actions as I found, not only do you win brownie points, but you're also more likely to stick to them. And you may also be able to educate or influence other people to change their behaviour in the process. But I was still stuck with wondering what on earth my goal was. If I now felt that it was completely unethical or totally unrealistic to be motivated by those conventional markers of success that we have within the art world, the winning of the Turner Prize and all the rest of it, I needed another goal or another challenge to work towards. So my goal was motivated by a concern for the environment, which developed into a passion for public transport, the rationale being, and this is my mini rant within the rant, 
that the only way we're going to reduce our carbon emissions to the extent that we need to is by minimising the number of journeys that are made by car or by short-haul flight. And the only way we can do this is by having a fully functional public transport system that's cheap, or I would argue even free, for us to use, and not one that's run by billionaires like Richard Branson and Brian Souter, who run our train lines, siphoning off the public subsidies to line their pockets while they're charging passengers a fortune. So, in 2009, I set up the Bring Back British Rail campaign, in order to popularise the idea of renationalising our public transport network. Um, so that this policy in which people are actually placed before profit could again enter into the mainstream political discourse as a realistic option and not as the taboo that Thatcher made it into. So I continue to run this campaign in my spare time and I also attempt to adhere to my environmental policy whenever possible. And I aim to bring the, the principles of both of these um, things into all the work that I still do do for an art context, but I'm not going to talk about that too much today. But I found that it's not always as easy as it sounds to, to stay on the straight and narrow, especially in this free market society that we live in, where so many temptations exist and so much money is spent, or you could say wasted, on advertising, and so much effort goes into brainwashing us or trying to convince us that we should be doing and caring about other things. And actually, I have been tracking instances in which I've breached my environmental policy since I set it up. And it's only always for love or money that I do that. So there's something to be learned <laughs> from this. But talking about values, as we have been doing a lot today, last year I was invited to write a text responding to some of the latest uh, research about human values, which I found incredibly useful especially for helping me to analyse these moments when I feel I may have strayed from the course. So this diagram, which hopefully you'll be able to see, was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and it shows on this circumplex, they call it, basic human goals, which have been found to recur universally across 15 different cultures across the world. So on the left-hand side, there are what are called the intrinsic values, such as popularity, image, and financial success. This all hopefully chimes with some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. And on the right-hand side, the intrinsic values, such as affiliation, self-acceptance, physical health, safety, and community. So to quote from the research paper... Dozens of studies now make it clear that people who prioritise extrinsic values, so your popularity, image and financial success, experience lower levels of well-being and higher levels of distress. If money, image and status rise in importance, people experience less happiness and life satisfaction Fewer pleasant emotions like joy and contentment and more unpleasant emotions like anger and anxiety in their day-to-day -day lives. 
placing higher importance on the intrinsic values and successfully pursuing these values is, in contrast, consistently associated with being happier and healthier. And so this evidence uh, also demonstrates that if a person prioritises any of the values on the left-hand side of this circumplex, then the ones on the opposite side get suppressed and vice versa. So if you care more and more about, if you care more about your own self-acceptance or value your community or close personal relationships with other people, then you're less likely to care about money or becoming famous. Um, but additionally, this evidence shows that if you value these things because of this suppression effect, then you're generally more likely to be a less selfish person, to be more environmentally conscious, and to have increased levels of well-being, which sounds like a complete win-win situation to me. So learning about all of this... I then started to reflect more on this life that I'd constructed for myself. And I started to realise that, more than anything, it was actually a really positive thing for me, personally. It allowed me to work in a completely de-alienated way, a completely non-specialist way, where I could have the joy of creative thinking and generating ideas, maybe simply for the love of it, together with the satisfaction of being able to follow some of them through right the way to fruition. And I realised that it was actually this type of work, it was actually this sort of work that kept me sane and was essential for my own mental health. It was as much for me as it was about communicating this process with other people or attempting to impact positively on the world around me. It was both selfish and selfless. It was in the interests of the individual as well as in the interests of the whole class. So I think these win-win situations like this are probably our only hope for motivating human beings, selfish creatures that we are, to do the right thing. And I've got a few more illustrations of, of what I mean. The first is energy saving. If we save energy in our homes, obsessively switching off all the switches when we finished, um, then not only do we get to feel smug and environmentally friendly, but we also save ourselves money. Plus, we save CO2 emissions, which will help to reduce um, the impact of climate change. Then, oh, win, win. It's obvious, isn't it? So the second is um, cycling. That's me and my cycling. You have to wear that in Glasgow, because it just, you have to. You wouldn't go out if you weren't wearing that. So cycling is another one that if you make all of your decisions a lifestyle choice, if you, sorry, if you make a lifestyle choice to make all your local journeys on bike, then not only are you getting from A to B, but you're getting all the exercise that you need to get whilst saving money. It's free, unless you go over a pothole, which does happen quite often. Um, but you're, you're producing zero CO2 as well. 
win, win, obviously. But my final example, my favourite, is eating porridge. Because this is a completely natural and unprocessed foodstuff. It's so, it's good for you. And it's also about the cheapest thing that you can possibly eat. It saves you so much cash. A whole big bag costs about a pound and lasts for a month. And it's locally grown, especially in Scotland, and, and hardly packaged at all. So it's minimising CO2. It's definitely a win-win. But what on earth has all of this got to do with art? I hear you say. Quite a lot, I think. Because these lifestyle choices, for me, are all part of what we've been referring to as this holistic art practice. So that if we make these choices, we can construct a living and working environment to such an extent that we can close our value action gaps. That is the gap between what we care about and what we actually do. But I think it's possible to also bring this win-win analogy further into thinking about how we might strive to use our creativity and to make work. In this book, Artificial House, I don't know if anybody's read it. I'm in chapter two. It's good. Um, Claire Bishop uh, sets up a number of dichotomies that she thinks present themselves in the realm of socially engaged practice. They're quality and equality, singular and collective, and aesthetic and ethical. Although her implication is that a lot of art that's produced either sways too close to either one of these poles. She does, however, suggest that there's a holy grail to be found, an artwork which has the potential to tick all these boxes at once, something that can have quality as well as equality and be both aesthetically and ethically pleasing. Claire's favourite example, of course, is the Battle of Orgreave, Um, And she considers this to have succeeded on many levels, creating awareness about an important part of British history, which had otherwise been marginalised, but also acting as a reunion or a reminder of the solidarity and even a cathartic experience for the people who took part in the reenactment, whilst at the same time contributing something new to the development of art history or the evolution of participatory art. Win, win. But for Jeremy Della, it was also a winner, you could argue, catapulting him to superstardom and winning the Turner Prize. It was a win, win, win. Which perhaps proves the suggestion, which comes from this values research, that there is evidence that artists motivated by their work rather than fame, rewards or a desire to prove themselves ultimately tend to be the most successful. So these win-win-win situations are obviously a lot easier said than done. They're not even that easy to say. But I now think that the role of the artist is one of problem solver. And somebody mentioned this on the discussion that I was at to do with success earlier today. 
As problem solvers, it is our duty to look at all the different issues at stake in any given situation. So who is, commission, who is commissioning you? Who will see this work? How much are you getting paid? Where is that money coming from? And most importantly, what are your values? What do you care about and what do you want to say? You should question whether any of this compromises what it is that you believe in, if any of this makes you feel uneasy. And then, if it does, use your creative response as a way of challenging or ameliorating this. Because it's the overproduction of objects which is our greatest problem, not the overproduction of ideas. In fact, it's ideas which are probably the only thing that can save us. So it's our challenge and our responsibility, even, as artists, to think, 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 until we come up with that perfect solution.